Hebrews, and I think we're going to leave the lights off because they are basically heat lamps and uh, probably not what we need. So if it's okay with you, we'll leave them off and it'll just be a little a little darker. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the third week in a series that is uh, on adoption and uh, beginning with our uh, adoption into the family of God and then the, how that works its way out into other aspects of life. Um, I'm not going to try and recap the last two weeks. You can just check out the podcast for that. And You don't have to have been here to understand where we'll go tonight, I don't think. Um, and there will be some natural, natural overlap, of course, between the weeks. Um, but the main idea is that we have been adopted into the like the family of God uh, in a similar way to uh, how children and teenagers and, you know, folks are adopted into families today. That we have gone from being um, strangers to God, that because of our sin we were separate from Him, um, because of that distance that's there we were, we were actually considered enemies because of sin And yet, in His grace and in His goodness, He has not only saved us from uh, from that sin and saved us from uh, ourselves and saved us and redeemed us and regenerated us, given us new hearts and um, and correct status and standing before Him again. Um, He has gone one step beyond that and has has chosen to make us a part of His family, to call us sons and daughters, to give us a seat at His table to make us brothers and co-heirs with Jesus of, of everything that God has uh, for an eternity. And He has completely changed everything about us. Um, and so now things are just not the way that they used to be. They're not the same because we have been adopted into His family. Um, much of this came from a, an experience I had in South Africa at an orphanage where uh, these kids are, are, are dropped off in a... In a in a bin, in a door uh, at this orphanage that people can come by and place their unwanted babies inside of this bin and the orphanage will come out and take the baby and they place these, they get, nurse them back to health and they get them ready and they, they place them with Christian families throughout the continent of Africa. And by passing through that door into that bin, these kids are on a completely different path than they were before. And our adoption into God's family means that we are on a different trajectory in every possible way than ever before. Um, so tonight I'd like to, to add two more things that, that are a part of that adoption to the list that we've kind of accumulated already. And, and it's just two points. I'm going to try to move quickly. So we're going to try to abbreviate our time together tonight so that we can have some fellowship time like outside where it actually feels amazing for the first time in like six months. So... Um, It'll it'll be two things. When you're adopted into God's family, you get the family name and you become a part of the family business. You get the family name, you become a part of the family business. 
So uh, I've said this a couple of times. My, my brother, my middle brother, Drew, he and his wife, Catherine, uh, have fostered two little boys who are brothers. Um, and they've worked their way through the foster care system. And they're now going to be adopting them in the next, the, it'll be official in the next couple of weeks, probably. And one of the things that is interesting to me is I didn't really know this was possible. Uh, like, I knew that they would get their last name, but they're also changing their middle names. And so Drew and Catherine went through, like, this whole process of being like, what do we want their middle names to be? Like, they are renaming these kids. Like, their last name will forever be Causey, and their middle names will be whatever it is that they choose their First names were given to them by their parents, and that's how they, what they've always been called. So it wouldn't make sense to change a five-year-old's name. You know, He's doing good just to catch on to that. Oh, that's me. Okay. Um, and so that changing of the name is something that is not, like it's present in our understanding of adoption. But it's also the case in like our adoption into God's family. Uh, there, we see a couple of times uh, in the Bible where God changes people's names. Uh, Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, Jacob becomes Israel, Simon becomes Peter. Each of these new names are tied to some sort of significant um, interaction that God has in their lives where some things radically shift. In the ancient Near East, their names, uh, like they didn't just name you something because it sounded cool. You know, they didn't get the the, the list of the top, you know, 20 names and whatever, and be like, oh, let's pick from this list. Uh, they didn't even name them after parents or grandparents or influential figures. Um, their names carried some significance, some meaning to them. When, when I was coming through the, like, in, like, Southern Baptist church life growing up, there was a trend where uh, you, would, you would get, like, a... Like, let's say you got, like, a card for your birthday or something like that. Or a Sunday school teacher would come in one day. And they would give you these little cards. And it would have, like, your name on it. And then, like, what your name means, like, in Hebrew or Greek or, you know, or something like that. And there was, like, you would go into, like, a Lifeway-type store. And there would just be racks and racks of all these names, you know. And it's, you're like, how in the world? Their names we're clearly making up, you know, like, at this point in time. And, yeah, they're, like, finding this magical Hebrew name. But... Uh, meaning for it or whatever, but that was something that I had never really thought about before. Like, I just was like, well, I don't know why I'm named when I'm named, but I am. And it never really occurred to me that there would be a reason for it. Um, but that idea that in the Bible that, that their names carried with it this meaning that was understood. And that's a part of what was so cool is they didn't have to say, like, oh, my name is Joshua, and that means this. Uh, they would just say, my name is Joshua, and it was, an, it was understood what that meant. So a part of the culture uh, during the times when in the Bible in the ancient Near East, that was a normal thing that happened all the time. Was you named someone, um, you named them something, and that like had tied to it some specific things. It had character. It had your hopes for them. It had the destiny. You know, like like parents were almost like setting their child on a certain pathway just by naming them something. Like there was a deep significance, and it was mainly tied to their identity of who they were. So there are times in the Bible when we see people name something really great and strong, you know. And there are other times when their name means, like, not mine, you know. Not, no longer my child, like these kinds of things. And so it could be really positive, it could be really negative, um, but it carries this, like, meaning with it. So when God changes people's names in the Bible with Abraham, with Sarah, with Jacob, with... 
Simon, whenever that happens, it's tied to this new shift in their identity. So when you and I come into the family of God, we're adopted into the family of God. We not, it's, it's not just a matter of, okay, we get a new last name, because when you became a Christian, your last name didn't become something else. In this deep spiritual way, though, the Lord looks at you as being so different than you were before that he wants you to know it all the way down to your name. That he has changed your identity, he's changed your destiny, he's changed all the hopes for you, he's changed your character, he's changed everything about you, and so why even call you what he used to call you? Why wouldn't, well, how about we call you this because now this, this is who you are. So you're in Hebrews 11, we're going to get there in a second, but a couple of references uh, that will go up on the screen. In Revelation 2, verse 17, looking forward, this is a part of the, your inheritance. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, okay, so that's going to be, if you're a Christian, that's you, meaning you're going you're gonna, like, to endure till the end in your faith. To, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And there's some debate about what, you know, what does this mean, but one of the things that is significant is that a white stone was kind of like a, it was used as like a backstage pass during the like athletic competitions and stuff. And so when someone won, they would be given this white stone and that allowed them admission to Let's call them after parties, whatever. Uh, it just allowed them ad- admission, since they had won, to be able to get into places where they wouldn't be able to get otherwise, that the common man could not go. But as the conqueror, as the victor, you were given this white stone, and so you could get to the doorman or whatever and give him the white stone. He'd be like, right this way, sir, you know? So God's going to give you a backstage pass to the one who conquered. He's going to hand you a white stone which is going to allow you to get into somewhere that you could not get into by your own merit. And on that stone, it's going to have your name. But not your name. That says a new name. A name that you don't know now, but that God knows, and that he will reveal to you. And so a part of our inheritance is at some point, God's going to hand us a white stone. And it's going to say something on it that we probably can't read because it's probably going to be in Hebrew because that's his language. And we're going to read that. We're going to look at that and we're going to say, what is this? He's going to say, well, that's your, that's your new name. That's your name. That's who you are. So we may go by a name interpersonally among one another now. But when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as the same person before you were adopted. He's changed your name. Because he's changed your identity, he's changed your destiny, he's changed your character, he's changed everything about you, and he wants you to know it all the way down to your name. Revelation 3.12, we see something similar. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. God's into this renaming thing. New name for the city, new name for the people, new name for you, new name is going to be written on you. It's his identification of you. In number six, 
This might sound familiar. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, this is 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. That when you say that blessing, you're stamping his name on the people of Israel. He's saying, mine. That every single day, this is what, what most, like, like especially your Hebrew scholars, your Jewish scholars, they're like, no, this has been said every day since this day. Somewhere over the people of God. That God is constantly stamping his name on you. That when we bless one another at the end of a service, we're reminding ourselves of whose we are. That he is blessing us and keeping us and his face is shining upon us and he's being gracious to us. That his, his countenance is on us and he's giving us peace and he's stamping us. I always, I always think about the movie Toy Story when Andy wrote his name on the bottom of the dude's foot. I can't remember the dude's name, but I remember it said Andy on the bottom of his foot. And there's this, Woody, there you go. There's a scene where he's like, no, no, and he like lifts up his foot and he like shows him like, no, I'm Andy's. He wrote his name on me. And when we bless one another, it's a reminder every time God's like, yep, mine. New names, new identities, new destinies, all the way down to the fact that he's like, I don't even want to call you the same thing because you're, you're, you're that different than you were. And it's so easy to think like, oh, no, I'm not that different. I'm not that different. If you weren't that different, then why would he put his name on you? Why would he change our names? Why would he adopt us and say, now that you're mine, um, everything is different, and I want you to know it? In Hebrews 11, Moses encountered this. Ruth 24 and 25, if you can see it. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And Moses was essentially adopted into this family, but it wasn't his family, you know. He was not really Pharaoh's. And there was something in his identity that he knew. He's like, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. And so he made a decision to identify himself with the Hebrews, with the people of God, because that's who he really is. Rather than the the, the fleeting pleasures of sin that could come his way by living in Pharaoh's house. His sense of identity drove him to act in certain ways. Because he knows, like he knew, knew who he was. And he'd kind of been faking it for a long time, I guess. And probably there's a lot of perks that would come with, being, with living in Pharaoh's house. And eventually he got to the point where he said, you know what, that's just not, it's just not who I am. So he made a decision. And we're in the same boat. Identifying ourselves with the people of God, with God himself, it's changes the way we live our lives. It changes the decisions that we make and how we make them. It changes how we treat one another. It changes how we treat ourselves. It, it changes how we approach all of life. It impacts how we spend money and how we celebrate things and 
uh, how we grieve and how we um, just walk through whatever life brings our way. It changes everything when we're identifying ourselves with the people of God. There's an accountability that comes with that. Now, the, the incorrect way to apply this is the way that a lot of us in this room, uh, and when I say us, I'm talking about like those of you who I know, and I know your backgrounds, and we've done this together for a while, so I can say us. This may not be everyone. But a lot of us grew up in churches where the application of this would be completely external. It would, it would be like, okay, so that's why there are, there's a list of behaviors that are acceptable and a list of behaviors that are unacceptable. That when you identify with the people of God, there's stuff you just don't do. And incorrectly applied, that becomes just behavior modification. So you're just like, oh, so all I have to do is just act right. And then everything's okay. But that's missing the, that's missing the point. That's, that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to free us from the bondage of having to live by a set of rules. I mean, he came to free us from the bondage of having to live by a set of rules. He also freed us from the bondage of swinging to the other extreme, of just doing whatever the heck we want. Both of those things are bondage. He came to bring us this freedom in our understanding of our identity so that we understand when, when, when we act certain ways, we're either acting consistently with who we really are or acting inconsistently with who we are. So the issue isn't, hey, don't do that because Christians don't act that way. It's like, hey, that's not who you are. That's not, who, that's, not your, you, that's not who you are anymore. That's not your identity. Moses got to a point where he's like, you know what? I've been acting in a way that's inconsistent with who I really am. So did he change his behavior? Well, yeah, we, we do that, right? We change our behavior, but Why? Do we change it because we just want to keep everybody happy or we want to keep the rules? Or do we change it because we realize, like, man, I'm being fake. It's not who I am anymore. My name is different. It's not who I am. So we no longer conform to the patterns of the world around us. Now we conform to the patterns of our father and our brother and co-heir, Jesus. So I was trying to think of a, like a movie reference, and maybe some of you guys would know this, but I'm just kind of drawing a blank. Uh, but it's like, pretend like you're watching some sort of movie or a TV show, and there's, there's like a, there's a house, and they adopt a, like they adopt a boy, and let's say he's six, and he comes in, and maybe there's like an, a sibling that's like eight. And maybe the sibling is like, hey kid, welcome to the family, I'll show you the ropes. This is kind of how we do this, this is how we do this, um... This is how dad operates. This is how mom operates. Uh, when they say this, they're not kidding. When they say this, they're kind of kidding. You know. The older kid teaches the new kid how to live in the family. That Jesus, in, in a, that okay, that only goes so far. All right, so bear with me. But Jesus is our co-heir and our brother, teaching us how to live in the family life. He's looking at you, he's like, hey kid, I'll show you the ropes. This is how we do things in this new family. This is how you do things with this new identity. That's a pattern of the world that you no longer conform to. This is the new pattern that the Father has revealed to us. This is how dad works. When he's like this, when he says this, he means it. When he says this, he also means it. He'll never say something he doesn't mean. He'll never manipulate you, he'll never play games with you, he'll never lie to you. 
He'll be firm with you, but it's always because he loves you. He'll discipline you, but it's because he's forming something in you. His compassion looks strange sometimes, but that's what it is. He's good and he's kind and he's merciful and he will bless you and he will keep you. And he'll make his face to shine upon you and he'll give you peace and his countenance will be there and you can count on him. And even though you may not understand it right now, that'll change and I'll teach you and I'll help you. That's Jesus to us in this new family because now we share a name with him. We may have different first names. We may have different names on the little white stone, but we share that last name, whatever it is. Or his. So when you were adopted into the family, you got a new name. You now have the family name, which is a reflection of your family's identity and your character and everything that comes along with it. You are not who you used to be. I'm not who I used to be. To such depths that our names are not even the same anymore. That's how badly he wants us to know it. So tonight, when we say the blessing over one another, think of it, he's stamping us. We're stamping one another with that name. Hey, in case you forgot, you're his, I'm his, we're his. Forever and ever and ever. So that's the first thing, you get the family name. The second thing is that you you get brought into the family business. We take on the agenda of the family, which is the glory of God through Jesus' redeeming work of setting everything right side up in his kingdom, including you, including me. That the agenda of, of our family is God being glorified through what Jesus has done. That's what we are now about. If you were adopted into uh, the Hershey family, you would be about chocolate, right? If you were adopted into, if you were adopted into Jacob Cohn's family, you would be about pest control, right? We were adopted into Jesus' family, we're adopted, in, and so our agenda becomes whatever is important to our Father. And our Father, His greatest joy is when He is glorified. Now, doesn't that sound like uh, kind of weird at first? Well, sure, it's easy to think like, well, God's just got the biggest ego ever made, right? Well, in one sense, He's the greatest being that's ever existed. And so it's like, come on, you know. But in another sense, he's leading us to function as he made us to be. And so through our transformation, through us loving him with our whole being, and us loving our neighbor as ourselves, and that that kingdom of God becoming more and more visible and real, that means we're functioning, we're syncing up with how he made us to be, and that's glorifying him. And so his glory is for our good. And when we're good, he's glorified. And when he's glorified, we're good. And it's like, it's this self-perpetuating loop that just happens and happens and happens and happens. So that's what you are adopted into as a part of the family. Now, if you're, if you're coming to faith moment was driven by a fear of like, like hell versus heaven, then you probably weren't given all the information. And you know what? That's a very effective, that's an effective like altar call time. Like, all right, if you don't want to go to hell, come on down the aisle, you know? People flood down and they repeat a prayer and then they can walk out and be no different other than the fact that they think they just did what it took to avoid being separate from God forever. 
So if you're not a Christian, you need to know this, that your eternal destination is a part of it. But being brought into the family of God means that you are now about what the family is about, which is God's glory. And so that's a part of it. And so if you are not informed, now you are informed. Hey, that's part of the adoption deal. But one of the amazing things about that, one of the many amazing things about that, is that it's not on you that you're a part of this like, massive global effort. And it's driven by the power of God and the goodness of God. and the, like, He does all the this, all this stuff to make it happen. We're just the willing vessels who just say, yeah, whatever you need to do to glorify yourself through my life, then hey, let's, I'm in. Why? Because I'm your son. I'm your daughter. I have your name. I'm at your table. I'm a co-heir with Jesus. Forever. Let's do this. Look at Moses again. Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ, all right, or the, the disgrace or the suffering that comes with association with Christ. He considered that to be more valuable, worth more to him than everything that being a part of Pharaoh's house could give him. All the money, all the whatever, the, whatever pleasures of Egypt, whatever you want to think that means, that's what it means. That when he was weighing those two things out, I can identify myself with the people of God and be about all the things that God is about, or I can just immerse myself in all the pleasures of Egypt that he looked at those things and one outweighed the other by a long shot. That he, like us, is called to go all in on the agenda of the family and the glory of our Father. And that means saying no to some things. That means like it reorders how you live your life. He wanted to be associated with the family and the family business because that's, who he, that's his identity. So much that he said, no, I don't, want, I don't want that stuff. I don't want any of that stuff. And for many of us, it's easy to get distracted by life. It's easy, easy to get distracted by life in America. It's easy to get distracted from what the family is called to do. And I just kind of laughed today when I was like, we're going to be sitting in a like, stupidly hot room tonight. Probably not too thrilled about it, you know? Uncomfortable and using floss waters as fans, you know? And what I was texting with Byron this morning. Like, By- Grace is involved in Uganda and we're involved in Calcutta. And I said, well, I said, you, th- you, think, you think they're having these same conversations in Uganda or Calcutta today? <laughs> he just said back, Amen. <laughs> It's not about, like, that's not my attempt at, like, first world guilt. It's just, let's get some kingdom perspective on things. What a great object lesson for us tonight that we didn't ask for. I'm not trying to spiritualize the AC taking longer than it would, but, man, what a great opportunity to be reminded of what we're about and what we're here to do. Moses' identity looked forward said he was looking to the reward. 
I want to say something that's been on my heart for a long time. Uh, like a couple months, long time. Not like 10 years. I'm like, why didn't you say something earlier? Uh, something I just can't get away from. Like these verses have just been wrecking me. And I, I've come to a realization in my, in my life, and maybe you can relate. Is that as much as... Right, so, and it says that he was looking to the reward... Like that means that he was looking forward to the inheritance, to the glory of God that is to come, that, it, that the family, achieving what the family's trying to do together. And he was looking forward to that. And in looking forward, it reordered his life backwards, you know. That in light of eternity, he made a decision to say no to Egypt and yes to whatever it took to be associated with God, the people of God. That it's so easy for me to, to preach and to teach and believe so much in the world to come, in the new earth, and everything being made new. And yet to make decisions and live in such a way that actually kind of says the other. So yeah, that's going to be so great. But just in case it's not true, how about I only just make sure that my life now is really comfortable and cushy. And that's the deception that we are, like, offered all the time. This thing, like, yeah, you know, heaven's going to be great, but what about now, you know? Don't we need a comfortable life now? Don't we need, um, like, don't we just need certain things now? Don't we want our lives to look a certain way now? When the, in reality, we're going to have an eternity that's going to be, going to blow this life out of the water and there'll be lots of times to do certain things that we love to do on the other side. But now, we don't have forever in this part of life. The people around us don't have forever in this part of life. And it's so easy to get caught up in the, the lie of the American dream that we end up living as though this life is really all that there is. When Scripture has clearly told us to look forward and to let that reorder our present. And I don't know what the application of that is for you. I'm figuring out what it is for me. But man, I don't want to li- I don't want to live that way, you know? I don't want to be that that guy in the family, you know. We just get so caught up in it. And it's helpful, you know, I've been able to to go to Calcutta and to go to Johannesburg and see some things, and that's, it's shifted some stuff in me. It has. And I'm, I'm just, in all honesty, I'm working through what that really means and what that looks like. But if we sink everything into the American dream and we ignore the great commandment and the second commandment, and we're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then we, you know what we're not doing? We're not living as sons and daughters. We're living as slaves. If we're believing that everything that the American dream has to whisper to us is, is it, we're missing it. One of the first times I heard John Piper speak was at a passion conference, and he told this story that's become kind of legendary. And in synopsis, it's about the, he read this article about this family who is a very successful businessman, and he retired at like age like 45 or something like that. And he and his wife had moved to some, like, luxurious place, like, in, the, in South Florida somewhere. And the whole article was about, like, man, what is, he's the American success story. 
And now he and his wife live in South Florida. They'll, ne- they'll never want for anything in their lives. They have all the money they could ever spend. And they spend their days collecting shells. And Piper was like, he said something to the effect of like, do you really think they're going to stand before the Lord to give an account of their lives? And one day they're going to say, Lord, but look at our shells. Look at this amazing shell collection. You know? And then he basically yelled at us for like an hour about waste, not wasting our lives. When he could have just stopped right there, we are like, we get it. We get it. And I can laugh at that scenario, but man, I, I can relate to it a lot. I was getting so caught up in things that don't matter. Moses sets an example for us. Jesus sets an example for us. And in the family business, we are about something that is greater than the perfect little American life. There'll be plenty of time for all those things we enjoy on the new earth. Like forever. But right now, time is precious. So he's given us his spirit and the scriptures and one another and the disciplines and creation and relationships with those who don't know him. He's given us these things to steward now because this is what the family does. From our identity, this is how we order our lives. We see it with Moses. The challenge is before us as well. In Galatians chapter 4, he's very, Paul's very clear and says, you're not a slave anymore, you're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. And so now there comes that point in the teaching series where we have to start asking ourselves those kinds of questions of like, man, am I, if I'm really a son, why am I living like a slave in, in, these, in these ways, you know? So maybe something connects with you about a shift in your identity and the name thing is really like, whoa, that's, that's worth praying and pursuing about. Maybe it's the family business thing. Maybe it's kind of all of it combined together. I don't, I don't ever know. But I don't think it's a coincidence that something like this, that God timed it up to be in an unair conditioned room, kind of uncomfortable, but maybe that's exactly what we need. Maybe it's a great reminder of what we're really here to do. And as we go, where we're going and who we're going to. So we're not going um, to do much else. That's kind of it. So the band's going to come, we're going to sing one song, and John's going to come and uh, close us out. Um, So why don't you stand together. Let me pray for us. Lord, there's so much to this adoption. I mean, something that is so simple in concept, you would just bring such depth to it. That's so much more than, uh, than meets the eye. And God, we are grateful. We thank you for the little things in life that are blessings to us, like air conditioning. And, and thank you for the times when you, uh, you can have their, the absence of air and the absence of the coolness and the comfort that's there, you can use that to remind us that, hey, that while those things are great, they're not of ultimate importance. 
that you brought us into a family that has a different agenda. That from our character that you have given us, from the identity that you have now instilled in us, from that we, we live and move and breathe. And we are about something that's greater. So help us, Lord, to, f- to be able to focus our lives and not get hung up in the stupidest stuff. Help us to get on the same page with you as our Father. Jesus, will you help us as our brother who's showing us the ropes? Help us to get on the same page and stay there and live that way and not to settle for less. And as we sing this last song, that just it tells the story. I pray we, you'd help us to realize this is our story. That this is what the family is about.